This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the On The Banks podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation. Now, here's your host, Aaron Brightman. Welcome to the On The Banks podcast special edition NCAA tournament episode. Words I had always hoped but never thought I would be able to say. 30 years in the making and uh, pretty unbelievable. Rutgers is preparing for their first round matchup Friday night, 9.20 p.m. Eastern time tip. Number 10 seed Rutgers against number 7 seed Clemson. I really could not have had a better draw uh, for the spot that they're in in terms of they're the only high seed that is favored going into this game right now. It's uh, we're talking Monday night. They're a point and a half favored over Clemson. It opened as a pick'em, um, and Ken Palm wise, Rutgers is eight spots ahead. So um, certainly as good of a draw as you can get. Um, I mentioned on Twitter today. You know, just saying something's a favorable draw does not necessarily mean it will be an easy win. This certainly won't be an easy game. Clemson has uh, definitely. Talent and experience. Amir Sims is an all-conference player. They have, uh, you may remember, nightmares from losing to Fordham two years ago. They have Nick Honor, the transfer, the guard that lit up Rutgers for 30 points. He's their third leading scorer. And then for those that follow New Jersey recruiting, Alamir Dawes uh, was the number five player in the 2019 class. Is the second leading scorer for Clemson. So uh, they shoot a ton of threes, play a slow pace. Matchup-wise, I think it's good for Rutgers, but again, doesn't mean it'll be an easy game whatsoever. Uh, but we have two uh, special guests for tonight. You know, I promised them for a long time I wanted to have them on, and no better occasion than to talk to Dave White, who I talked to quite a bit uh, working with On the Banks, uh, and have since, you know, I've been with On the Banks, which was 2015. So for us to have a conversation, I thought was absolutely necessary. So we speak with him, and then we're also going to have Jerry Carino, of course, the beat writer are the dean of the beat uh, for Rutgers and New Jersey basketball. You can't talk about the NCAA tournament without talking with Jerry. So thrilled to have both. Uh, so we have an action-packed episode, and uh, let's go to it now. Time to talk to the reporters. Here's your host, Aaron Brightman. Welcoming in Dave White, longtime contributor of On the Banks, longtime season ticket holder for Rutgers men's basketball, dating back to the 02-03 season, 2001 graduate of Rutgers, and social media guy for the court club, the official booster club of Rutgers basketball. Dave, it's been a long time coming for us to have a conversation on the record. We talk all the time, but uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, how are you feeling a few days out from the first NCAA tournament appearance in 30 years? Right now, I'm still in the this is awesome stage. I haven't convinced myself to get nervous yet. So I'm just like super excited right now. Like last night was crazy. My son tackled me like cheering when, when we heard the Rutgers name get called and all the texts and, and, and tweets and everything was great. So I'm still kind of buzzing from that. But now I'm starting to think about matchups and, and the actual game. So the, the awesome is starting to even out. All right. So so I wanted to talk on a few things, obviously, but um, I wanted to just kind of go through 
the past. You know, I think this is a really unique time for all Rutgers fans. You know, and, and there's really stages of Rutgers fans. We have the old school Rutgers fans, older than us, you know, that lived through the 70 glory days. They, some even remember, you know, Valvano and Lloyd back in the 60s. You know, they remember going to the garden, seeing, you know, the packed garden with Rutgers fans, beating St. John's in the 70s, you know, that final four run in Philadelphia. And then you have other fans, you know, like myself. I was at the 1989 Atlanta 10 championship game against Penn State when Dadica hit that three and the, the, the roof exploded off the rack you know i remember the 91 team keith hughes earl duncan the two transfers from syracuse keith hughes hasn't been a better low post player since at Rutgers. and then you know we have fans that haven't ever experienced any positives really in terms of real postseason appearances or success and that's when you come in dave <laughs> so you started uh, why don't you talk about when you went to school at Rutgers, when you started following the team and what your earliest memories are of the program. So I, I went to school, I was a freshman in 97, 98. I actually remember very clearly before the season started, it was Bannon's first season, I think. And I was writing for the Targum and they gave me an opportunity to interview Vivian Stringer. So I'm a 17 year old freshman, walk into the rack and they're telling me, go to the media room. And that's the only information they gave me. So I'm wandering around and Kevin Bannon comes up to me and goes, you look like you're lost. <laughs> and, uh, you know, gives me directions to go talk to Stringer. But um, no, my first real memory of, of the team is is clearly the big East tournament win. You know, I followed the basketball team. I knew that they were up and down, but I had like a lot of night classes. I worked at home in my freshman year, so I didn't go to a lot of games. But I remember going to get dinner the night of the built the second game against Georgetown and walking in and usually until it, they had a whiteboard up with whatever the food was that night. That night, they didn't have the food up they just had the final score and it wrote bill it with the game winner so i rushed to the computer lab like look up the game find out what happened the next night i drove home because aaron you probably remember this at Rutgers. we didn't have cable <laughs> in the dorm rooms in in 97 98 so i drove home to watch the game against yukon and after that like seeing that highlight of the buzzer beater and everything man i was sold i went to games the next year i was at the game in the uh NIT when they lost to Clemson. The following year, I was at the game booing Troy Murphy when Todd Billett went nuts. So, like, ever since then, I, I've really been a fan. Remember following the coaching search after Banning got fired, trying to learn about this Jay Wright guy who I was convinced they were going to hire. So, that's kind of where it started for me. Yeah, so I remember Bannon well. I mean, I so I knew Bannon before Rutgers. I, uh, when he was at Ryder, had success there. I grew up right around Ryder and my high school basketball team, we went to his team camp every summer. So I heard Bannon speak a bunch. He was really the up and coming. Everybody thought he was the up and coming hot new coach that he was going to be the one to turn around Rutgers. So what do you remember about that? And when did you, you do you have memories of when this isn't going to happen? So it was weird on campus because it's not like it is now. Like, you hear stories, but you don't know the whole thing. So we heard the stuff about the free throws. We heard that stuff wasn't bad. But I think I knew things weren't going well when Dante Jones transferred. And then, you know, they had that really bad season after that. Um, I remember thinking that they started out well. And then they went and played Florida, I think, at the Meadowlands and got just blown out. And I think that's when I kind of knew maybe this isn't going to work out that sort of thing and and then after that it kind of went south from there so yeah Dante Jones was the I think the red flag you know I, I actually played high school basketball against Dante Jones and and Bannon had recruited him 
from like eighth grade on. And that was like his ticket. That was his big time recruit that he was going to turn the program around. And when he left, that was, you just knew that things weren't going on. I, I think another, we talk about 2000, people talk about 2004 Virginia Tech all the time with Waters. But do you remember 99 when they were 17 and seven going down the stretch and they lost the last four games of the regular season. For me, that was when like the gut punch of, is it ever going to happen? I went to the Seton Hall game that year and was somehow in the Seton Hall student section and saw the ball go out of bounds. And it turned out it was off Hodgson's leg, but we all thought that whoever was defending him knocked it out. So I was like, all right, they're going to get another shot. And then Seton Hall's inbounding the ball. And, you know, I remember walking out of that. I've walked out of the Meadowlands a couple times dazed. Absolutely. So Bannon doesn't work out. They hired Gary Waters. He could coach. He, he had some, some you know, yeah, I, th- I think he was actually a little bit ahead of his time. You know, I mean, he had some of the best three-point shooters in Rutgers history uh, mm-hmm. between Jerome Coleman, Ricky Shields, and Quincy Doobie. He really valued the three even more than back then when, when they did. What do you remember about that era, and why do you think they fell just short? So that's when I really got into to Rutgers basketball. I had a friend who was still on campus, and he got us tickets to sit in the student section for the UConn game his first year. And we went to UConn, Syracuse, back-to-back, and Jerome Coleman just goes nuts. Mm-hmm. Wins two in a row, two ranked wins. And after that, I was sold. I knew I was getting season tickets. I was good to go. But Waters was was weird, man. His He didn't, like, have a linear build. He had a great year his first year. And then the next year, he had all sorts of chemistry problems. And then he ran half the team off and brought in Doobie and Webb and Byron Joins. They went to the NIT finals. And again, you think everything's going, you know, starting to skyrocket. And then the next year, Ixani graduates, Lamazana leaves. And there's, again, chemistry problems because he couldn't have two three-point shooters on the same team that got along. And then the next year, Doobie goes off, but he... Everybody kind of knew, I think, when Fred Hill got hired as the assistant, like, you should keep an eye on this. <laughs> Why are they bringing Fred Hill here? And, and on one hand, it seems like a brilliant move. He's the lead recruiter at Villanova, and he's coming to Jersey. But on the other hand, he seems like a head coach and waiting kind of guy. So I don't, I don't know. That's hazy to me. I mean, why? What? when I knew it was going to go bad. I remember they lost at home to St. John's. That seemed to be the, the in the student section. They rolled out a fire Gary Waters banner that got taken away by security. And <laughs> um, I, I think that was everybody talks about the blizzard, but it was worse than the blizzard. Like there, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. I, I, I think the key mistake with him was right away where he brought in his own staff with yeah. no New Jersey connections. I mean, Hurley and Billet were on the staff. You know, he didn't retain them. Which, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I, I understand why you would do that. But I, I think just jumping off a little bit with Peichel, I you know, you remember this really well. We talked about this so much. Like, Peichel knew he had to hire Brandon Knight. He knew yeah. he had to hire Brandon Knight to come back, to come into New Jersey and, and make inroads with New Jersey recruiting. And just to gain credibility. And he did everything he could to get Brandon Knight. And I remember it was like the day before and there was like rumors he wasn't coming and you know, it was like, we were like, we, this is going to be bad. Like if they don't get him, this will be bad. And I always worry. I always thought back to Gary Waters because Gary Waters cleaned house, brought a whole Midwest staff with him that had no Jersey connections at all. And I really think that was part of what you're talking about with the rebuild. It never had a linear quality to it. You know, he was able to get some good players, but then the Fred Hill thing, you know, I think Rutgers recognized they needed that Jersey guy in the staff. They kind of forced mm-hmm. it on Waters. And that was one of the most awkward situations ever. 
having him on the bench. And it just, I think, created this tension that, you know, obviously you knew they were going to give it to Hill eventually. And, and that was another one, you know, that everybody thought <laughs> was going to be this, this rising yep. star that just, I don't know how everybody was wrong, you know, myself included. I, I remember being pumped about it. I mean, Fred Hill personality-wise was, I mean, it was a disaster. I mean, that was another one where, and there's always signs where, where you, you think it's, it's going to turn. Like, they come in, they beat Villanova out of nowhere. The next game they win at Pitt where nobody wins with Coburn and Corey Chandler going crazy for, like, two games straight. And you think, okay, those are signature wins. He's going to recruit off this and and go from there. And it just never – he had so many transfers. Like, every every kid he recruited – it was when Eshenike transferred. It was when you kind of knew it was over for him. Yeah, so I saw them at the Garden against North Carolina in <laughs> – 2008 yep. and I was sitting I was like sitting three rows behind the bench and and you know this about him because the stories are out there and bad and you know I mean the cursing and the talk back from you know especially Mike Rosario but with Hill just the way he just he, he was he was a mess he was a mess and you know cursing the players having I mean I remember hearing Rosario forget which game it was that game I honestly can't remember but just lead into him and tore him apart and it was disgrace i mean it was just like there was no control whatsoever and i just felt like i remember having a sinking feeling when i heard it i was like oh this this is not this is not good yeah yeah i mean i i guess because they were losing i didn't follow as closely i did, I actually didn't know that i'd never heard of the the bench stuff although i i, I have to admit i never minded when him and gonzo uh got into it on the <laughs> of course the always fun the Bambi on ice uh, three-pointer bank shot to win it. I remember where I was. And, uh, you know, that was a terrible season. But that was the capper of the season. And uh, that was fun. But uh, that was that – was, and it ended so bizarrely, too. Yeah, it was just so weird. It was out of nowhere. I remember Keith Sargent and Carino did a, a – like, they reported on it together. And I'm like, this might be a big deal if they're both reporting on it together. Because that was when <laughs> Keith and Jerry were working at the same paper. They were both at the Asbury Park Press. But Keith was the, the football guy. So then we move into Mike Rice, right? And we don't have to harp on the downfall. But I really I, – I will admit this. I mean, I was so optimistic about him as head coach. I will never forget that last season, 2013, his preseason press conference. I must have watched it like 10 times. Because I, I, I've never been more fired up by a coach. He just opened up cold. And they were like, Coach, do you have a few words, you know, before you take questions? And he spoke for like 15 straight minutes about what was what they needed to get better at, what they were good at, what, you know, where the program was going. I mean, it was so focused and organized and detailed. And I just was like, this is the guy. He's, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. And uh, obviously I was completely wrong. But, uh, you know, I mean – he was like a precursor to, to Peichel in that, you know, defense was such a priority. I feel like that was a, a, a team that, you know, played defense at a level that we, we hadn't really seen prior to that. Yeah, I mean, Rice, if Rice, how do I put this? If we don't really want to go with the Mike Rice era, Rice was a good enough coach and a good enough recruiter that he would have gotten it done here. And they just played defense and he coached up a bunch of grinders just like Peichel and, and could knock off anybody. I mean, he knocked off Florida in one of the best games I've ever seen at the rack and then followed it up by knocking off UConn in just a defensive masterpiece. I think they scored like 50 points. He just had that knack and he was just trying to get the talent in here and then things went bad. Then we'll go into Eddie Jordan. So 
we and that's when we met so you wrote yep. uh recaps of the first two years of the jordan era i came in on the third year and i remember you basically being my psychologist as that season <laughs> went on because writing recaps for that team unfortunately was like pain therapy and torture you talked me off the ledge several times well i remember aaron well, i don't want to get too much into the bad stuff but after the loss to louisville in the aac tournament my recap was three sentences long <laughs> because if they weren't going to show up neither was i and people on twitter actually got mad at me for that like they're like you phoned it in i'm like what was i supposed to say about that game so like the next day i wrote like a whole thing about how that game could like impact going forward and it's gonna hang over them and they need to win next year i think and man that was that was some rough times and there was just you just never knew like what was going on the, the rebounding quote but they beat wisconsin we're talking about off air they had some moments yep well, and that Wisconsin, <laughs> they, they were they were two and two in the Big Ten to start the season. That was 2014-15 season, and then, as you mentioned, they they went to Maryland the next game. They were winning in the second half. They lost by single digits. They lost by single digits to Minnesota on the road, and then they lost to Michigan at home by four points. So it's really crazy to think that even in that second year, you know, I'm not saying he was close to turning it around, but. You know, things had not gotten – we all remember that last season. But that second season, you know, they also they, – they beat Vanderbilt and Clemson that year too. They beat Vanderbilt in that Brooklyn tournament. They played Virginia. They scored 26 points against Virginia before Virginia was where they are now. But Tony Bennett – That game was close at the half too. It was like 22-18 or something. And the Clemson game was a, a, a offensive masterpiece. They backdoor cut Clemson to death. I'm like, maybe this isn't so bad. On the road – and the first time they ever won the ACC Challenge. So that year had some moments where you thought, this isn't awful. And then the next year, the wheels fell off. And, you know, we called for his firing and everything. So brings yeah. us to Pykel, brings us to now. All right, let me ask you this. When did you know that Pykel was going to be the one to get it done? Someone else asked me this question, and we just talked about it. It was, when did I know he was going to get to the NCAA tournament? I think when... We sold out that game against Penn State at the end of his third year, and the place went ballistic, and they made they were down 20 at half and made that run and lost on, like, a block. And they had just beaten Iowa on the road. Like, that stretch there was when I knew it was different. When I knew Pykel was going to be around for a while was when he got ninth. Like, when he made that move, and I'm like, okay, oh, my God, Carl Hobbs is a name. Brandon Knight is, like, the recruiting guy. Even Rice tried to hire Knight and couldn't do it. We're building a practice facility. It was like the support is there, you know, and I don't know what kind of coach this guy is at the time, what kind of coach this guy is or anything, but he's doing things the right way. He's making this, taking the steps that they've never been able to take before. You know, there were, I think there were signs every year. I think the yep. first season, you know, he started 11 and one, mm -hmm. obviously it was non-conference, but, you know, just to do that from the way the team was the year before, you know, and yeah, I, I, I was there. I, I, and I remember what a big deal it was at the time. I remember that first year they beat Ohio State in the Big Ten tournament. And, you know, it was Thad Mata's last game. But that was such a big deal at the time for the last place team. I mean, they, they were dead in the water and they played really well that game. They got blown up by Northwestern the next. Then you have the Big Ten tournament the next year. That Indiana game, I mean, I'll admit, they were down 24 to 8, I think, at the start yeah. of that game. I remember thinking, this is over. Deja vu from last year. And he outcoached. Indiana in that game, I mean, that was the start of it for Archie Miller, I think, with Pykel dominating him. That was an unbelievably, as 
much credit as Corey Sanders deserves for just going off. Michael's adjustments, I thought, at that point of the game were, were unbelievable. And that's the thing. I mean, people like to get on him a little bit this year, but he always makes adjustments. He always has great plays coming out of timeouts. I mean, he's been around for five years, so now other coaches know his tricks, but he's run circles around Archie Miller. He's run circles around Rick Pitino. He, you know, these guys that aren't in the league anymore. He, he's, you know, he and Chris Collins have had some battles when one team is up and the other team is down. They've, Other than that blowout, I think they've always been close. You know, there's just so many. He he has McCaffrey's number. He just can't seem to to get over the hump. I think he knows how to coach against McCaffrey, knows how to stop him, but it, he's only beaten him two, three times. Yeah, well, and look, listen, Izzo has had his number big time, but look at that first game this season and then the adjustments they made for the second game. You know, and held, yeah. defensively, the way they held Michigan State. Oh, I think just for perspective, we've talked about it, but I mean, the best Ken Palm final ranking that Rutgers ever had before Steve Peichel was once in the 70s with Gary Waters in 04 and once in the 70s with Mike Rice. And that was it. Everything else yep. was worse than 100. You know, Jordan's 279 that last year. And then, you know, Peichel comes in and was 78 at the end of that 19 year that you talked about when they lost to Penn State, and that was, you know, Issa Chum got arrested after that game. They lost at Indiana. They had a terrible game against an uh, undermanned Nebraska game, uh, team to end the season in 19. And that was, that was you know, that was disheartening. We, we felt like they were right there. They're going to finish over 500. And then what I think people forget about is they skipped a whole, and you've, taught, you've written about this, they skipped a whole level of the rebuild. Yeah. The whole NFT phase never happened. It never right. happened. And that doesn't really ever happen at a yeah. program like Rutgers. It happens at, you know, big resource, high major programs. But Rutgers, it doesn't happen. So I think the fact that, you know, we'll always have this one if of last year should have counted. It doesn't count. We'll all remember this on our deathbeds. I, I, I will. I know I will. Yeah. But yep. at the same time, I think that point doesn't get, even by us, I think gets glossed over too much. I think the turning point, now that you like we're talking about it and we're having this big cathartic conversation, the more I think about it, I think the turning point for this team was actually Eugene transferring. I think that brought everybody else on this team together. You saw it on Twitter, you know, like how they reacted on Twitter. And I think it brought everybody together. And that was the moment where all these players that he recruited with chips on their shoulders said, all right, it's not happening again. You know, they all know the history of this program. They all know it, whether... Whatever Steve says, they all know the history of this program, and they they kind of said they put their foot down and said no more. I completely agree. I think that was a huge moment, and I, I think as much as he was a loss, you know, we don't know, but as much as he was a loss on the court, something triggered this team personality-wise that you know, like you said, it united them. But I think that there, it just I think allowed them to go for it in a way that they hadn't gone for it before. So. Just touching on this season, you know, what do you make of this season? It's 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 like you know, you're you're uh, you're a published author. How many how many chapters or how many books would this season involve? I mean, this season is the classic like Dickensian <laughs> season. I mean, it's full of melodrama, ups and downs. I mean, I think you and I talked about it. That hot start, we both were kind of like. They're playing really well, but they're not playing Rutgers basketball. I mean, they beat 
Illinois and I think Syracuse and gave up 80 points or high 70s to both of them, which is not Rutgers basketball. I don't think they really started playing true Rutgers grinded out basketball until that win at Indiana. You know, um, maybe the Wisconsin game that they lost that was close. But I mean, this season has had so many ups and downs, so many twists and turns, so many moments where you're like, this is going to be amazing. You know, that, that game against Iowa at the rack was fantastic, even though they lost. The game against Illinois was great. They beat Purdue without their two best without Rutgers' two best players. But then there's these big losing streaks where they look like they can't find their way out of it. It's just you could see we talked as about the chip on their shoulder. You could now see, I think, the weight on their shoulders. Um, I think there's something to listen, we don't know what's gonna happen with the seniors. But there's something to the fact that these guys knew that this might be their last shot at it. And I think they were feeling that weight, whereas they were playing free and easy early on. Um, so hopefully now they're, they're like, it, they don't feel like it's the last shot, but now they feel like, let's just go out and play. We did what we came here to do. Now let's go out and play. Totally agree. I think, I, I think an underrated issue is the continuity. I think the fact that they got off to that hot start in a way hurt them. Because you didn't have Gio, you didn't have Caleb, then they lost Omarori. So they're playing in a way that isn't sustainable, A, because they're shooting so many threes, but B, they don't have the personnel that they're actually going to be with the rest of the way. And I think they got into some habits that were hard to break when everybody got back. And I think that that really, there was a hangover effect of that, I think, for, for quite a while. I think... You know, I've said this to you off the record. I'll say it on the record. I think they're a classic. I, would, I don't think it's fair to say underachieving. I think a team that maybe you thought would be better than they were, that maybe everything's coming together right at the right time. And their they're, they're position, I mean, listen, look at the draw. I mean, you could yeah. not have asked for a better draw with Clemson and Houston, which, you know, our initial thoughts are probably, well, of course, then it's not going to happen because it's a perfect draw. But... It really is set up for them. So many things have happened this year that I think that as as frustrating as the season's been, there's been some like shining light of like, wow, that actually is working out for them. That's a good thing, you know. And uh, I, I just I, I just really think that this is a classic NCAA team. We've watched the tournament for years. Those teams that maybe don't perform great down the stretch of the season end up something clicking at the end and being able to make a run. And I obviously I'm biased. I hope it happens, but I really do think trying to look at it objectively, there is the makings of that in terms of them, the, the group that they have. I mean, there's experience on this team, and the matchup is what you want. You know, it's not UConn scared me. Some of the other predicted matchups scared me. I didn't. Even, I didn't even have Clemson on the on my radar, so I know very little about them. Everybody's saying it's the matchup you want. They're the only lower seed that's favored. So. Every other team that's a higher seed, that's a one through eight, is favored. Rutgers is the only second half seed, ten seed that's favored. So I don't know how that makes you feel, but as a Rutgers fan, I'm uh, <laughs> let's be underdogs. <laughs> I know. Well, you sent me the Seth Greenberg clip yesterday, and you said, "Oh no," and I said, uh, I, "I said, well, this means he said something positive because you were like, oh no.'" <laughs> and of yeah, course, exactly. he did. He picked, he picked Rutgers to win, and said, "You know, they, they might win another game after that." So. Just to end things up, what what are your plans for Friday? What do you think your emotions will be? And, you know, how are you going to, no matter what happens, how will you remember this group and this team? So my plans for Friday are 
It's a night game, thank God. So I'll be a nervous wreck all day. Ben is my eight-year-old son. He's going to try and stay up and watch with me. And I'll be hooting and screaming and hollering. But listen, no matter what happens, I've never experienced this before. So how can I leave this with anything but a good memory? I'm greedy. I'd love to see them win a game or two more than that. But this, this has been, it got to the point eight years ago where I couldn't even envision this. And now it's happening. So <laughs> you, you got to enjoy it. But I am going to be an absolute nervous wreck on, on Friday night. Well, I think that'll be the case for pretty much every Rutgers fan. And, uh, you know, for all the younger Rutgers fans, I think I think it's fair to say, even though they've been through less, it's probably been like dog years where it's <laughs> felt, you know, if you've been a Rutgers fan for even five years, it's probably felt like for 30 years. So for everyone, I think it's just an amazing moment. And I hope everyone enjoys, enjoys the moment, enjoys the ride. And hopefully it lasts longer than maybe we, we even expect. So thank you so much for joining us. Follow Dave on Twitter, Dave underscore white. And uh, you want to do a plug for your for your books? Yeah, buy my books. You can go to uh, DaveWhiteBooks.com. Um, Jackson Dunn series. They're set at Rutgers. You can find them on Amazon. And follow the Court Club at, at our Court Club um, on Twitter and, you know, chuckle. And it's my pleasure to now welcome in the Dean of New Jersey Basketball Beat and the Rutgers Beat from Gannett and Asbury Park Press, Jerry Carino. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us once again. Oh, I mean, I, there's no place I'd rather be this week than talking Rutgers basketball. You know, all these years, my attention's been divided between Rutgers and Seton Hall and all these other schools we cover. Now, it's just Rutgers, and it's great. I get to focus on one school, and not only one school, but a school whose fans are absolutely lapping every ounce of coverage up right now. So, yeah, this is perfect. Well, I, I, I couldn't have this podcast before this game without having you on for complete coverage. So thank you so much. And let's just jump into it. What were your impressions of the way this team finished the season? Obviously an up, up and down battle, but uh, overall, what are your impressions going into this uh, NCAA tournament for Rutgers? So, we, you know, it's very obvious, Aaron, that they, they played their best basketball in December. They, you know, they didn't really string many good. I mean, they had a, they did have a winning streak, but they didn't really string many impressive performances together, especially against the better teams. So I thought they were kind of running on fumes at the end of the year, to be honest. Now, that can change in a heartbeat because, you know, this is the NCAA tournament, and if there's ever going to be a time to flip a switch, it's now. But my impression was that the team was really running out of gas. Again, we don't know behind the scenes how difficult these guys have it with the COVID protocols, the 6 a.m., you know, wake-up calls for the for the uh, testing, the swabs up the nose, the isolation, inability to see families, inability to see girlfriends or to really do anything. It's 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 hard on these guys. So the the idea, the theory is that this gives you a new life, right? This is a new life. This is a second chance. I think Pike will summed it up well on Sunday. You've now been given this golden opportunity. What are you going to do with it? So I don't like the way Rutgers finished the season at all, but I do like the draw, and I got to feel that there's enough talent here where if the mindset is right, they could very well do something here in this bracket. So you've obviously covered college basketball for a long time, and I, I was uh, saying before that I feel like this Rutgers team does have that classic look of a team that struggles down the stretch, that's able to have certain elements in place, you know, obviously the experience uh, of a veteran team that knows each other well, of being able to catch fire a little bit and make a run. What would they need to do to be able to do that? Well, first of all, I think you just got to win one game. Like, I think if they, Aaron, if they win one game, everybody's going to feel really good about this team and what they did this year. And 
having covered the NCAA tournament with Seton Hall and having gone there when they've been bounced in the first round and having gone there where they've advanced and won one game, it's a huge difference in the way everybody feels about how the season ended, right? So, you know, it's it's like, it's not, it doesn't compare to the Big Ten tournament. Like, so they beat Indiana in the Big Ten tournament. So what? You know, Indiana was dying as an operatic death. But like in the NCAA tournament, every team is good. You're going to win a game. You've beaten somebody good. You moved on in that bracket. Everybody knows about it. It's a big deal. So to me, it's a run starts with winning one game. And I think that will change everybody's perception. Now, you know, the classic definition of a run, of course, is two or more games. So, you know, Rutgers has a chance because going into Selection Sunday, we all thought they were going to be in an 8-9 opposite Gonzaga or Baylor, and you ain't making a run out of that. No chance. And then they could easily have had UConn as the seventh seed in that first round, which I think would have been a really poor matchup for Rutgers, having seen UConn a lot this year. And UConn finishing really strong. So I, I would not have liked that. So to me, it worked out the best-case scenario. They get, a, they get a seventh seed who they're probably better than or at least equal to. And then they get a two-seed, and Houston is good. Don't get me wrong. They're good. And they would be a significant favorite over Rutgers or Clemson. But playing Houston is a lot different than playing Baylor or Gonzaga. You have a chance against Houston. So it is an exciting time. that, And, you know, it can if Rutgers can put together one good game, will it lead to another? I mean, that's kind of what you don't know. And that's really the magic of March and the sport. So quick impressions on the profile of Clemson, how they match up against Rutgers uh, in terms of, obviously, we know Ken Palm, Rutgers is eight spots higher. You know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about Ken Palm, it's interesting, you know, Clemson has the 20th best uh, defensive efficiency, Rutgers 18. But if you think about it, I, I you know, they played 18 league games at the, in the ACC, the fifth rated conference, where Rutgers had 22 games. And historically, the best conference there's been in 20 years. Defensively, they look similar, but are they really on the same level? Well, let's look at, before we talk about the conferences, and yes, of course, the, the Big Ten is much better than the ACC this year. Let's look at who, who Clemson played at a conference. So Mississippi State, which was, you know, a 500 team, they won that game. Purdue, which they beat. Maryland, which they beat. Alabama, which they beat. So, I mean, that's a really nice run at a conference. So they played a very tough, they played up at a conference and did really well. Now, a long, it's a long time ago, okay? So, you know, Rutgers also was, was, was rolling, was red hot at that time. And they're not the same team, and Clemson's not the same team. In a lot of ways, these teams are, are mirror images of each other. Although Rutgers played the preponderance of a better schedule, you know, Clemson was tested. So I, I think they're probably comparable. And it just, you can, you can just feel the rock fight coming, Aaron. You could feel it coming. You know, that two or three possession game where like every every basket is humongous and like the, the shots are bricking and, you know, the physicality, you can feel it coming. You know, if someone gets to 60, they're going to win this game. Michael has this thing, like, he likes to say, hold them to the speed limit. No one is going to be speeding in this game, I don't think. It is a purest game for sure. And, and it's going to be a game that is, is torturous for Rutgers fans. It's going to be that last 10, 10 minutes is going to take take years off some people's lives, I think. At least mine. So, Amir Sims, you know, he's uh, one of seven players in ACC history to lead his team in points, rebounds, and assists, and he's done it two years in a row. Uh, how much do you know about him, and how much of a matchup problem do you think it will be, and who do you think will defend him? Yeah, he's a Swiss Army knife, right? He's a little like He's a little like Sandro Mamuklashvili, a little bit of Seton Hall, a little shorter, uh, maybe not quite as versatile, but he's a Swiss Army knife. He's a decorated veteran player. So 2018, Clemson made the Sweet 16, right? And he was a big part of that team. 
So he was the first guy off the bench, and he plays playing like 20 minutes a game. So he's been through the wars. Like, this won't be new to him at all. The good thing about what Steve Peichel does, and you've seen this, and we saw it against against Minnesota in that last game of the regular season, Peichel's very good about taking the one guy away. Like, if your team is, is really relying on one guy, he's good at taking the one guy away. That's a defensive specialty of his. So he's not going to just use one player to, to defend Sims. He, there's going to be multiple players, but probably Harper to start. And then I think you're going to see a lot of Caleb McConnell on him. You know, six seven long arms, really good, tough defender. But they're going to use different players. You know, you might even see Cliff on him at times. They're going to use different – They're going to. I don't, I don't know if they're going to stick Miles Johnson on him just for the foul situation, but probably three different guys to try to wear him down. And that's kind of what, what Steve's calling card is. But yeah, he's, he's a real good player. He's probably the Sims is probably going to be the best player on the floor. And when you have that, that is certainly an advantage. So uh, Rutgers has a little bit of a size advantage on the perimeter. Clemson's a, a very, uh, you know, they love shooting threes. They have this 24 attempts a game. They've actually shot really well in losses, uh, but they're, they're not an inside team. You know, how important is it for Rutgers to attack the rim in this game and really set the tone inside the paint? Well, that's the, I mean, that's what I've been screaming for all year long, right? Right? Can't shoot, attack, or at least play inside out. So, you know, you dump the ball to, to Miles and then he's a good passer. You have maybe this guy's open on the perimeter and you have options, but... One thing that just seemed to be, they seemed to catch on to that down the stretch of the season, right? Where they needed to attack and, ch- and chuck less. And so, yeah, that's going to be it. I mean, that's the game because Clemson, you know, they, they defend the perimeter well. And also, Clemson plays a lot of guys. So, like, they're, gonna, they're not going to have a whole lot of drop-off when they go to their bench. They're very deep. Usually, Rutgers is deeper than most of their opponents. Clemson will be the deeper team here. But you have a guy like Miles Johnson, who I think has been Rutgers' most consistent player this year. You know, I'd like to see them run a lot of the offense through him. And also, remember remember the way Rutgers was playing in December when they were on fire offensively? The, the ball was moving through the air a lot. That's really important. The more dribbling you get out of Rutgers' guards, the worse their offense is. So I'd like to see them space out, you know, try to get the ball, that, try to work inside out through Johnson and move the ball in the air. And they get better looks that way. So it's easier said than done. Clemson's a good defensive team. But, yeah, you're going to have a size advantage. You'd like to see them attack the rim. Just last key on the game, you know, obviously turnovers were always an issue. But I, I think, you know, this is an opportunity that Rutgers can run in this game off the turnovers. They, they haven't done it in, in, in a lot of games this year, which has, I think, been a little puzzling. You know, do you think that just based on knowing what you do about Clemson, that this is an opportunity Rutgers can get out and run a little bit? Obviously, Clemson plays a really slow pace. You know, how much, how important do you think that is for Rutgers to be able to, to speed it up at times? Well, Clemson has like 300 turnovers or something. They turn the ball over a lot. So they're not really a good ball handling team. They're not a good, their offensive efficiency is poor. So yeah, that's an opportunity. I mean, that's, that's ideally what you want to do. This could be one of those games, Aaron, where like that, that midway through the second half, that 6-0 spurt breaks the game. Yeah. It's going to be that low scoring. So, and you know, Rutgers has a couple of players who that's what they, they thrive in transition. Uh, you know, Mathis, Young. So this is to me that if they can do that, that would be ideal. Like I think, I think Steve Peichel in his dreams loves, loves like a, you know, the, uh, the sort of half court chess match type of game. But in Rutgers in this case, should definitely want to speed the game up. I think that will be to their advantage. No question. You gotta, you gotta get those easier buckets when you can. You don't want to be stuck in the mud trying to figure out Clemson's in the half court. Rutgers just hasn't been good at that this year. All right. So you've been on the record with this saying, you know, that this team is, is talented enough. Really, they, they need to win one game in the NCAA tournament. 
you know, obviously they've, they've done something no Rutgers team has done in 30 years. Uh, their legacy is set to, to, I think, a large degree. But tell me what you think, difference-wise, it will ultimately be a win versus a loss. First, let me just say that just making the tournament alone is obviously a really big deal, especially for the long-suffering fan base, but also for the perception of the program, right? Like, so no longer can can somebody in negative recruiting say, you know, you're not, you, Rutgers hasn't been to the NCAA tournament since you've been alive, since your since your older brother's been alive, since your parents been alive. I mean, they can't. That's gone now. Like, that's gone, and that is a big deal because that was hammered home with recruits and then in the negative recruiting world. So that alone is, is a very, very big accomplishment to get that monkey off everybody's back. Like you, the most symbolic moment of this season, Aaron, and you witnessed it, was after they won at Minnesota and it was finally done. You know, we knew they were going to get in. The, the the end of the Zoom, Geo Baker lets out the biggest exhale of all time, right? <laughs> you could you could just feel the weight coming off of his back, off of his chest. And I think everybody in the program felt that and was weighed down by history. So that's a big deal that that's gone. All of that said, this team has too much potential to go none and out in the NCAA tournament. And for a team that opened the season ranked 24th in the AP Top 25, that reached number 11, that looked really brilliant in December, and also that that is a good veteran team. This team is good. They have ability. They have pieces. And you don't know whether, when you're going to come down this road again. Like this, There could be a lot of roster turnover. There's going to be everywhere. So the time is now. And to me, with the draw they've been given, the veterans they have, they have a moment here. Like Rutgers hasn't given Selection Sunday was was a moment for the fan base. But on the court, in a game, Rutgers hasn't given you a moment since December. I mean, you need a moment from these guys. Like beating Illinois is, I mean, beating Indiana in the first round, of, you know, beating up on crappy soft Indiana. That's not in the Big Ten tournament. That's not a moment. You know, getting drilled by Illinois is not a moment. Surviving a, a Minnesota team in a nosedive with the coach on hot coals. That's not really a moment. Beating Clemson, and because Clemson's a good team, beating Clemson and advancing in the bracket would be a moment that no one will ever forget. And this team, to me, in order to really feel like they've fulfilled their potential, has to get that moment. And Aaron, you know, I've seen teams go none and done. I've seen teams advance, win one game in advance. It's an enormous difference. And you'll hopefully you'll experience that Friday night. And then after that, it's house money. After that, it's gravy. But to me, this one game is really important for the psyche of everybody in the program. And also, I think ultimately the way this team is going to be viewed vis-a-vis its potential. So last question, all that being said, and, and I completely agree with what you're saying, and you've mentioned it before, this team is very, very aware of the history of the program of this moment. In your opinion, what you know of this team do you think that helps them in this moment, or does it actually potentially, you know, is it almost too much for them? Would you almost prefer that they, they're not as aware, and maybe this could, like you said, bring another, you know, you talked about the weight on their shoulder breaking the streak. You know, is it? do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage for this group specifically going in? To me, they did, they, they got the weight off, I think. I don't see, for them, like the getting into the tournament was the thing that was weight, I mean, I think they understand, they know, and Geo Baker said it in October, that it's about advancing for them. They're good enough to advance. But I don't know that that's a psychological roadblock for them. I don't think that'll come into play. When you get to this point in the season, it's about, it's really more than anything else, it's about matchups, right? And they match up well with, with Clemson. So this is a game they should win, and it's a game that I think they will win. And I think it's a game they expect to win. I do. And so go and do it. All you can ask, right? 
And the other thing, the other thing, intangible, intangible thing, Aaron. You know, Rutgers played two road games in the Big Ten tournament, basically, right? They played road games, and they won't be playing road games this weekend. Clemson, does anybody even know what basketball is at Clemson? <laughs> They've had a nice program. I mean, that's football, football, football. I don't think you're going to see Clemson fans taking over that banker's life building. You know, you're not going to see that the way, like, Indiana and Illinois fans did this last week. And Houston does – they travel pretty well. I saw them in Wichita in 18. But they're not going to take over the building. Like, Rutgers is not going to have to deal with that. So I think – I believe that will also help with these guys. And I, I have to think – that the Rutgers fans who are lucky enough to get in that building are going to really make some noise because, my goodness, I mean, it's been a long time coming, man. <laughs> don't make noise then. When are you going to make noise? <laughs> well, Jerry, uh, we'll end it on that. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. I, I, I hope to get you back for this. I hope this moment is happening. It's finally happening. And uh, I, I didn't want to uh, commemorate this moment without uh, having you part of it. So thank you for everything. Appreciate it. And, uh, I hope you're right, and uh, we'll see what happens Friday. It could be, could be a fun weekend. Enjoy the game, and maybe, who knows, we'll talk again. Thanks once again to Dave White and Jerry Carino for joining us for this special NCAA tournament preview special. You know, still unbelievable. Uh, we're four days out from tip. We'll be three days out when this airs. And, um, you know, it's just a surreal feeling. I hope that all Rutgers fans, young and old, are soaking it in. Of course, as we discussed, you know, a win would make it so much sweeter. But even if that doesn't happen, you know, it really is a ride to enjoy no matter what. And uh, where this program has come and where they were, it's, it's really remarkable in the time frame they've done it. After last year, you know, you couldn't uh, make, make it up uh, in terms of all the trials and tribulations that have happened. You know, I've joked before that, you know, if you wrote a script of all the the crazy, terrible things that have happened in the last 30 years, it wouldn't sell because I don't think it's believable. But that's what we've all been through. This Friday is about celebrating, and I really think that this veteran team, you know, uh, obviously I'm biased, but I, I really would be surprised if they didn't have a good performance and get the win. And I think it's just going to solidify their legacy even more. So thank you so much for listening. We have plenty of coverage on On the Banks. We have a story stream going on uh, by tomorrow. It'll be 10 articles deep. Uh, with preview coverage, we'll have plenty more the rest of the week. So check us out there. Uh, also want to just mention Rutgers women's basketball got their seat tonight. Uh, number six will play BYU number 11 on Monday, March 22nd at noon on ESPNU. So good luck to the women's basketball team as well. Hope they make a run. Uh, and we could have a lot of fun this March with both teams uh, making a little bit of a run here. So thanks for listening as always. Enjoy the ride. Follow On The Banks on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Just search On The Banks Podcast.